back a year and a half ago when I retired from full-time ministry, I, uh, I uh, wasn't able to be here because I've been in Galleon, Ohio for about the past year uh, doing an intern in, in between pastors there, and they, they finally called a pastor, so we get to be with you now. So how y'all doing, okay? You're stuck with me for the next, uh, today, the next six weeks, and uh, I'll, I'll be able to be with you on the first Sunday of Advent. But until then, I'm, I want to do uh, a series of six messages, uh, and we're calling it Soul Shift. And uh, the one I want to do today is, is from me to you. As we do every year in, in the church, this past May, we celebrated Pentecost. And uh, the day that the Holy Spirit was given to, to live within his people. And in this season of Pentecost, uh, which runs from Pentecost Sunday to, if, if you follow the the church calendar, a Christian calendar at all. Uh, the, the last Sunday of the Christian year is Christ the King Sunday. So the Pentecost season runs from Pentecost Sunday into Christ the King. Then we go right into Advent and begin to rehearse that drama all over again to live the life of Christ as we anticipate his coming, as we enjoy Christmas together and celebrate his coming to earth. And then uh, we, we, go, we see his baptism and his uh, temptations of the wilderness and then his his death and his resurrection, and then Pentecost, and we rehearsed the life of Christ. And uh, several years ago, I started ordering my life by the Christian calendar rather than the secular calendar. It just kind of keeps me on track as I follow the life of Christ. And for this season, I've been in the book of Acts because uh, we see in there the acts of the Holy Spirit through those early disciples. And so we're still in that season of Pentecost. So uh, I want to ask in the season of Pentecost, what, what is life really look like when we, when we make Jesus Lord. Uh, genuine transformational living, victorious living, influential living begins when through surrender we give the Holy Spirit unqualified permission to be fully operative in our lives. For those that like to take notes, I, I have try, I'll try to include fill in the blanks and provide slides for this time together. And so what, what soul shifts, what, what shifts happen within us? What, what transformation can take place when we like Paul make Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 I made this this verse one of my life verses years ago as I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me the life I live in this body I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me of course, our greatest example is Jesus Christ who gave himself to others. So this first soul shift I want to look at is this shift from me to you. And, and I think this shift in us when we become Christ follower uh, influences all the other shifts that take place. This, this me to you is not natural. We were born selfish. We were born self-centered. If you don't believe that, just have a baby. You'll be reminded, Right. And babies are supposed to be babies. We were talking this morning about the, the time change. And I heard someone say one time, whoever decided to change time in the spring and fall didn't have a baby, right? Because babies don't know about the time change. Our dog didn't either. I mean, he still stayed on one, one schedule and we had to adjust our schedules. But, you know, this, this me to you shift, we're, we're born self-centered. And, and we all have past deeds and actions that prove that in our lives. And, but when we respond to the gospel... In an affirmative way, something begins to happen in our lives that shifts us from me to you. 
Sometimes it all seems to fall apart. Murphy's Law is in, in, in force, and it's not just raining, it's pouring. You've experienced this in life. We've, we've heard the words uh, of a daughter-in-law and, and the words of a mother-in-law, a mother-in-law quite often. But it's usually in the context of a wedding ceremony. And those words are, they're found in Ruth, wherever you go, I will go. Your God will be my God and your people will be my people. That wasn't originally stated in a wedding ceremony. Uh, It was said to Naomi in a hopeless time in her life by her daughter-in-law. And, in the, and we're going to look there, and if you want to follow along your Bibles, Ruth chapter 1. In the life of Ruth, famine for her became the opportunity for me to you to develop, to develop in her life. So let's look at the book of Ruth for a few moments together this morning. And, uh, and, and don't worry, my wife is on your side, okay? She reminds me when I get too long-winded. So if I get too long-winded, she's with you. She'll, she'll give me a talking to on the way home, and she'll say, that was a little too long. You need to cut them a little shorter. So if you, if you think I'm long-winded, talk to her, and she'll <laughs> pass the message on to me because uh, I, sometimes I don't listen. <laughs> I still may not. But anyway, she's shaking her head yes. First of all, act one. Act one. Let's look at this. The move to Moab. Uh, a horrible famine was raging uh, it was raging not only Naomi's family, but the whole country where Naomi was, where the food shorting became a cause of starvation for the people. So Naomi and her husband, they, they become immigrants. They decide to try life somewhere else. Life would be better where we can get something to eat. And they became strangers in a Middle Eastern country of Moab. And as a result, they, they were no longer in danger of starving. And their sons even found wives in the land that they journeyed to. As Naomi and her husband settled in, into their new home, it became uh, obvious. Uh, well, they said, well, maybe we'll be grandparents. Life is beginning to get good, and, and, uh, and, but no such luck because when it rains, it pours. Um, storms in our lives can, can even turn into swirling tornadoes of chaos and destruction. So we see in Act 1 this move to this country by this family. Act two, tragedy and death come. It gets worse before it gets better. And Naomi's husband dies. And not only does her husband die, but then one of her sons die, followed by the death of another son. All the men in this family tragically were wiped out. And with their deaths, all financial security and retirement income were gone for Naomi. And her daughter-in-law. It was, it was not a culture of women's liberation. It was not a culture where women could sustain themselves. It all depended on the men because it was, it was that kind of society. And three widows who bare, barely knew each other were left behind. Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. Naomi decided to go back to her home since the famine was passing in her homeland and she she reasoned that it would be better to be in poverty among her own people than to be a poor immigrant widow in a foreign land. So we see the tragedy and the loss. Act three, uh, the move, they begin to move back to Jerusalem. In their loyalty to their widowed mother-in-law, Ruth and Orpah began the journey to Naomi's country with her. But on the road home, the aging woman began to be concerned about these young widows. 
And in Ruth chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, here's what she says. Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Now, even with this speech, these two Moabite widows resisted the request to abandon their mother-in-law, and they would go on with her. And she replied there in verse 13, No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Now, like Job's friends and others in the Old Testament, they didn't have a very developed view of evil and suffering in our world, so God got all the blame for everything the bad and the good, and we can see that here in this story. So after Naomi's second speech, Orpah heads home and probably reasoning with herself, okay, she said I could go. I'm, I'm going to take advantage of her, her invitation to leave and go back home, and she did. And I imagine she reasoned with herself, okay, I did all I could, right? I, I did all I could for my, my mother-in-law. Of course, I, I have a family back in Moab to return to. And the possibility of, of another's husband. And Naomi's release is, in fact, a relief for her. It's perfectly understandable and expected for me to, to head home. So I'm sure she said something similar to that to herself. It's only natural, especially when you hit rock bottom, to look out for yourself. But Ruth threw a wrench into this rationale. Okay, As Orpah headed home, Ruth stayed with her mother-in-law. Naomi could see that Ruth was not listening to reason, so Naomi gives a second speech. Now, notice the first word Naomi uses in that 15th verse as she says, look. You ever said that to, to your spouse or to your, your kids? Now, look, and you wave the finger. Now, look. Now, look, daughter-in-law. Look, Ruth. She begins that way, and, and Ruth knew she was going to get, get told how out of line she was when uh, Naomi started that word, look. So Ruth looks up, and she listens to Naomi's last lecture there in verse 15 of Ruth 1. Look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Now, not only did she pull out the look, and perhaps waved the finger, but she also did the whole family comparison thing. It probably went something like this. Okay, Ruth, like Orpah, you have a family and, and some security back home in Moab. In my home country, you're going to be an outsider, an impoverished immigrant widow like I was in Moab. And being an outsider, it's going to be extremely hard for you to, to enculturate yourself. It's going to be very hard for you to remarry in my country. As you know, remarriage uh, to, is going to be your only ticket to fi financial security. It's the only way you're going to have any retirement program in your life. And I'll let you in a little secret, Ruth. My people are pretty snobbish about intermarriage. <laughs> And they're really big on the how many Moabites does it take to park a camel jokes, okay? They're really big on, on that kind of thing. It's going to be totally awkward. Why can't you see what's best for yourself, Ruth? Well, here's why. 
You see, Ruth was looking out for herself. She was looking out for Naomi. Ruth knew that while her chances of remarriage and a new husband and new security in life would be slim, Naomi's chances for the same were nil, nada, zilch, zero, ain't going to happen. And she knew that Naomi was too old to work in the field. She was too old to remarry and continue her line and hold on to any assets that she had back home. She worried that her mother-in-law would die penniless and alone. And Ruth's situation was hard, but instead of focusing on herself, she was selfless. Ruth wasn't born that way. Nobody is. You see, something happened to Ruth. She had moved from me to you and her living. Now, our tendency is to put ourselves first. We, we cut in line, whether it's uh, in the elementary school lunchroom or whether it's in the interstate merge lane. Yes, I've been one of those people that you felt like cussing out as they pass you and go to the front of the line and get in the front. I've been guilty of that. Now I've confessed it. I feel a lot better. <laughs> My wife's in the seat next to me when I've done that before. And, uh, you know, telling me what the right thing to do was. You know, that little angel sitting on my shoulder there. And I didn't listen often. So whether, you know, whether, you know, whether you're a kid in the lunch line or you're an adult, we, we've all seen our children and, and grandchildren sit themselves in the middle of their toys and say, mine. You know, gangs have turf. Suburbanites have privacy fences. Non-verbally, we all say to others, no trespassing. Why are we inclined toward fighting and war and competition? Why do we gain, try to gain advantage? Why do we conspire and sabotage? Why do we compare ourselves with others? What makes one race develop prejudices against another? What makes the other hate them for it and then seek revenge? Why is power and violence or conquest, the first thing we think of when something goes wrong. Scripture has a three-letter word that answers that question, sin. And notice that right in the middle of sin is the letter I. It's about I, it's about me. The root of this selfishness, this desire to be superior to everyone else different than us is sin. And again, right in the middle of that is me, I. The Bible has a lot to say about this subject. Depending on the translation you use, the Bible talks about sin between 500 and 800 times. And in the book of Romans alone, Paul talks about sin dozens of times, and he gives us a clear definition of sin. So where did sin come from? Romans 5.12 says it started with Adam. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all humanity because all sin. So sin started there. It causes death. Without sin, we'd live on this earth forever. But why us? Why, why does the action of one man have such an effect on us now? Because since then, we, we all have sinned and fallen short of, of God's glory. Paul tells us in Romans 3.23, we're just as liable as Adam. We're just as selfish. We all would have taken a bite out of that apple. And our sin has consequences, Paul reminds us in Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. It's it's like getting a paycheck at the end of our work week. Eugene Peterson put this same verse this way in the message. 
Work hard for sin your whole life and your pension is death. Live a life of sin and all you get is a retirement plan of eternal regret and torture. And this affects every one of us. We're all in the same boat. We, start, we all start out in identical conditions as sinners. Scripture leaves no doubt about that. Again, the message says this is not good news. <laughs> yes, we're, we're all in this train together, but it's a one-way, nonstop ticket to eternal regret. Now, the book has, of Romans has a lot of good news about sin, too, because of what Christ has done, we can be free from this. We can, we can get a connecting flight in the opposite direction at Calvary International Airport. And it's a flight to you have been set free from sin. Romans 6, 18, he, Paul makes it clear over and over again, it no longer has to be our master. We no longer have to be slaves of sin. And instead of, instead of shaking our heads and worrying about our dreadful destiny, we can, count our, we can count ourselves, Paul says, dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. When the soul turns itself toward God, each day of living in relationship with him delivers more freedom. I hope you discover that as we walk with Christ, we experience more and more freedom. We move further from sin and death the person born selfish, like Ruth, becomes selfless. It's a, it's a shift in the soul that can be made possible by, by Christ's sacrifice. It's not natural. It's a supernatural thing that happens because of the spirit that dwells within us. So let's go to, to act number four, the opportunity for me to you living. We continue to see this opportunity available to Ruth and, and to us. As we continue with the story of Ruth, she was clinging to her mother-in-law's skirt, not, not really wanting to abandon her and leave her alone. And with a firm look and a fierce determination, Ruth says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Ruth 1, verses 16 through 17. So the two widows together cross the border. Naomi's life reached a turning point in this moment when she committed this kind of selfless love to her mother. It reached a turning point. And Naomi's life reached a turning point. Blessing after blessing followed from Ruth's selflessness. And the story of this impoverished immigrant widow named Ruth ends with one of the better and they lived happily ever after endings. The next act, Act Chapter 5, Act 5, the selfless living of Ruth results in blessing for Ruth. But not only for Ruth, but her selfless living results in blessing for Naomi and Boaz and the nation of Israel. Because of her selflessness, not only did Ruth marry a, a charming, wealthy businessman, but her great-grandson, David, becomes the king of the country that she immigrated to, Israel. So we, we begin life curved inward toward ourselves, caring for our own needs. The infant cries for the bottle. The teenager worries about how she looks or he looks. Or an adult obsesses over their career. We're hardwired for self-preservation and self-advancement. and self. That's not all bad. 
But when that's the reason we live and we're the center of the universe, it is a bad thing. We're hardwired for all that. And if something bothers you when you go out, even, even when you go to church, whose interests and preferences drive your criticism? Of course, yours, your interests, your preferences. Don't worry, you're not the only one hardwired to be all about me. So this shift from thinking primarily about me to thinking primarily about you is to curve outward toward others so that we see them first, that we see their needs as well as we do our own. Instead of what should I do with my life, you ask, well, where can I serve others the best? Instead of do I believe in that project enough to donate my money, we ask, does someone need my money more than me? And would it help them or hurt them if I gave it? Even your prayer life changes. From dear God, let's talk about me, to dear God, there's someone I'd like you to help. And if you, if you want to do it through me, I'm available. Uh, we all know about the Salvation Army. They've been around for many, many years and the good work they do. Uh, when the members of the Sal- Salvation Army gathered for one of their conferences, their founder William Booth was too sick to come. Booth was expected to deliver a, a keynote address to the conference, but was unable to travel. It'd be like the Nazarenes getting together for our general assembly once every four years, and the general superintendents can't make it. You know, what a letdown that would be to hear their inspiring sermons and all that. But instead, he asked if he could write his speech and, and have it read for him at the conference so the night came and the crowd gathered to hear and to hang on every word of their revered founder speech and they expected his words to explain a lot of things to inspire them with rationale for helping others and for their service instead booth was able to fit his entire speech into one telegram message it represented the focus of the movement's work and when the telegram was read to the crowd it contained one word others That was it. Others. That's what it's all about for those who have moved from me to you. The heart of the shifted soul is broken by the needs of others, not the self. The eyes of the soul shifted from me to you are constantly looking to the needs of others. What's me to you about? Well, one word, the word of the founder of Salvation Army, it's others. The final test of any religion is how it affects our relationships with other people. You know, I see a lot of people claim a lot of things and have a belief list a mile long. But I watch their life and there's no love for others. Our relationships serve as mirrors for the soul. Our relationships with other people show how spiritual we really are. When we read Mark 20, 30, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. You know, we don't mind asking ourselves how much we love God because it's kind of hard to measure. It's it's subjective. No one knows but you and God, but it gets much more uncomfortable when we ask ourselves how much do we love others? The Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, the Fruit of the Spirit all include this love for others. 1 Corinthians 13, not just 
the love of God. And while we tend to measure ourselves first on that question about God and then the question about others, the Bible actually turns those around. It reverses those, putting love for others first. Do you want to know how much you love God? Then how much do you love the other in your life? How much do you give your time or your talent or your treasure to the least, to the immigrant, to the poor, to the unemployed, to the oppressed, to the victim of tragedy, to the citizen who's at war even with, with us? How much energy, energy do you expend in, in love those who are least like you? How well do you forgive? How much do you overlook? How consistently do you defend? How well do you transition people out when they no longer can perform? How well do you, you break up when the relationship is over? How well do you honor those who uh, have just some weird habits and annoying behaviors? How many chances do you give those people who disappoint you or at least let you down? And Jesus sends us into families whose trust has been been destroyed by broken promises. He sends us into the streets of the cities where people are wrapped up in their addictions. Jesus points us towards those suffering from racism and unemployment, where people have been robbed of their dignity to nursing homes, where those who no longer seem useful to society are now marginalized, or he sends us to the hospitals where, where patients sit quiet and afraid. He calls us to look into the hearts of these people and see the kingdom. What are their true needs? What help is available to them? God's dream for you is to dream for them right along with dreaming for yourself. To act in such a way that their needs are met as readily as your own. To be so selfless as to help before you hoard. Why? Because our love for God is no greater than our love for others. Beth recently turned 50 and things were changing way too fast at, at work for her. The boss had hired three, three new salespeople who were nearly half her age and they knew all the technology as if they'd been born using it. Uh, kids and young people know how to use the technology. Our, our little grandson's not even two years old. He was born in November, so that makes him almost 21 months. My wife gets FaceTime calls from him all the time. He knows how to get mom's phone, find her picture, touch the picture, and then FaceTime. So he called her one night, and his mom's over there and says, Who are you talking to, Miles? He said, Nanny. So I can understand this lady's frustration. She's now surrounded by young employees who who know all the latest and greatest technology as if they were born using it. It seemed just like yesterday that she was the one with all the potential, the one being admired by others. Her office was was right next door to these new kids on the block, uh, especially right next door to a newlywed whose name was, was Emma, who was fresh out of college. She was 23 years old. Beth had been surprised a few few months earlier when Emma showed up at her Sunday school class at church. And so after politely chatting a few moments after class, she was mortified to learn 
that her husband had met her, her husband, Jim, and that her husband had uh, talked Jim into having lunch with him. So here you have this new employee, this new kid on the block all of a sudden. Her and her husband are going to lunch with you and your husband. So over the meal, Emma confesses to Beth that she was a bit overwhelmed with the new job and that she didn't quite know where to start. And over dessert, Emma's husband hinted that their first year of marriage had been a struggle. They had moved four times in a year. They had done a stint in both their parents' basements. And as she listened, Beth felt her heart slightly shift toward Emma. Beth looked at Emma differently after that. She began thinking to herself, maybe I could take this girl under my wing. If she's looking for someone to help her and some advice at work and at home, maybe I should help her out. Rather than seeing herself now as competing with Emma for the attentions of others in the office, Beth began to dream of ways to help Emma succeed. And so Beth and Emma began to going to breakfast on Friday mornings and Emma began looking at Beth as her mentor and the shift Beth was going through was the ongoing shift in her life as a Christian from me to you. You know, she had done a lot of selfless things in her life but this new phase of life, her 50s, offered new new opportunities to become more like Christ once she had never faced before. Aging itself was part of that shift that gave her the opportunity to travel further down that road of me to you. St. Francis of Assisi said hundreds of years ago, he, he told us to preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. I might tend to think that the most important thing I do from week to week is to preach, to pray and prepare the message for you all to hear, but it's not my words that matter most. It's how I live my life from day to day. This past summer, I worked on my, my car a lot. I'm kind of a backyard mechanic, and I like mechanical work. And uh, going to see our, our daughter and son-in-law over in Maryland, my uh, head gaskets blew on my car. So here I am stranded. So bought a new, another car while we were over there and had my son-in-law tow our car back to us. And so uh, I disassembled that, that engine all the way down to the block and put it back together three times in six weeks in order to correct that problem and to get it right. I probably had a total of 90 hours of work in that car. My neighbor across the street had watched me open that garage day after day and work and put on my gospel music and to listen to WNRZ, the station from Mount Vernon Nazarene University, and, and he heard me singing. And uh, so he comes over uh, and he says, I, I, couldn't have, I couldn't have done that. I'd have taken a sledgehammer to that car, you know, a lot of days ago. And so, and, he, and he's watched our lives. He's watched me mow my neighbor's grass who, who couldn't do it or didn't have time or whose wife is very sick. Uh, and so he walks into my garage uh, the first week of June. He says, I don't know much about the church you, you preach in. Could you tell me about it? Now, of course, I, I use the opportunity not only to describe the church, but I use the opportunity to describe the church as a way to present the gospel. To let him know it was Jesus and not belonging to any particular church. Uh, that all of us have sinned and fallen short 
And, and while we're sinners, God pursues us passionately and he loves us. And he demonstrated that by sending his son to, to die on the cross. And that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is who he says he is, the son of God and the savior of the world, it says we'll be saved. And when that happens, we begin to walk with God and God begins to make a difference in the way that we live. And that what sets up and what sets us apart, maybe from other churches, is our cardinal doctrine that, that when God gives us his Holy Spirit, he fills us with his love. That's, that's our cardinal, that's sanctification in a nutshell. That's our cardinal doctrine. We believe that when we're born again, that that's not the end, that God comes and can fill our lives totally with his spirit. And it's made very plain that when we're filled with the Spirit, we receive the love of God, which makes it possible for us to love God and to love others. And so God pours his love into our hearts. Now, I didn't have to go looking for that opportunity. And oftentimes we don't. It, it comes right to us. And opportunities will come to us as they did to Ruth if we allow the Holy Spirit to constantly refocus our lives from me to you living. I guess one of the greatest examples in my own personal life, when I pastored in Morgantown, West Virginia, God gave Sharon and I a little friend. Her name was Linda. And she was a Down syndrome lady. Her parents took very good care of her. She was very high functioning. But, you know, she could just test me to the limits. She would, she would talk to me literally, you know, 25 times a day if I let her call me. And so I would uh, give her a schedule. You can call me on Tuesdays in my office and on Thursdays at home and, and talk on the phone. Even after we moved to Ohio, she stayed in touch and we became friends. But I was privileged to go back and, and, and do her funeral. And uh, the title of the funeral is, is what God taught me about himself through Linda because her love was tenacious her love would not let you go one of the funniest stories and I'll close I had a guy preach for me and uh, one, one Sunday when I was gone and he, had a, he has a Christian counseling ministry in town his name's Will it's called Shama Ministry and just a great guy <laughs> so uh, one of the stories he told we were sharing stories and laughing together about Linda how she had touched all of our lives and he shared this he goes yeah I remember preaching for Raynard one Sunday and he said I made the mistake of giving Linda my phone number and so we went out to lunch together after church my wife and I and, and we were gone quite a while and you know we probably didn't get home till two or three o'clock by that time Linda had left us like 20 messages on our phone started out very congenial at first Pastor Will I, I loved your preaching I, you know I, I loved how God talked to me in the service and uh, call me when you get home. And uh, she left messages like that. And as the messages went on, she got more and more irritated. And he said the last message that she left for him was, Pastor Will, get your skinny Christian butt home and answer this phone. But God brings people into our lives to teach us patience and to teach us how to love. 
And the whole sermon taught us how God teaches about, you, you couldn't do anything to drive Linda away. Even if you said something that hurt her feelings, she would pout for a little bit and get over it and come right back, tenacious in her love for her friends and her family. And God taught me so much about himself and about his love and his tenacious desire to be with us and to be our savior and to be our friend through, through Linda. Well, I hope you're on this journey, this journey with Christ. And as you walk with Jesus and are a follower of Jesus, may he, he move you more and more from me to you living as we have more and more of his spirit in us and more and more of his, his nature in us, not more and more of his spirit, but more of his nature as we surrender our lives to him. Let's pray together. Well, you know, I've, I'm included in your, uh, in your sheet there, handout sheet, just some questions, and they're great questions to ask yourself as you go through your devotions this week, but they're really good to ask one another, perhaps in your life groups together or in Sunday school class. Anytime you get together with another group of Christians, these are good things to, to ask yourselves to keep you on track. In what ways has God already made shifts in my life from me to you? In other words, what impressions have you received from the Holy Spirit during this sermon? In a normal day, how much do you think of the opinions and needs of others? What personal rights have you given up for the good of someone else? What is something significant that you've done for someone other than yourself this week? If your closest friends or spouse were asked, what would they say about your willingness to, cure, to care for others? What evidence is there that God is, is making you more aware of the needs of people around you? What habits have you developed that enable you to ignore others or to even feel good about writing others off? How often do you build up that barrier? So these are just good things as you allow the Holy Spirit to continue to talk to you as a result of this message this morning in your, when you're alone or, or with other Christians. I would challenge you to make yourself accountable to someone else. That's, that's a good way to make progress on this journey with Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you that uh, we have the opportunity to grow in you because you've promised your presence to us. Uh, we don't have to worry about you abandoning us or forsaking us. There's nothing that we can do in life to cause you to love us any less than you do now. There's nothing that we can do to cause you to love us any more than you do now. So it's in, in that uh, rich, fertile garden of your, of your love that's so foreign to us that we, we can grow and flourish. And so, Lord, we come to you as, as your people, the flock of your pasture, the people under your care, your family, your children, asking you, Lord, help make us more like Jesus. And help us to move a little further up the road from me to you living. And we'll give you the praise because as we see Ruth's life, not only was her life blessed, but the life of others around her and even her nation was blessed because of her selfless living. Lord, we have no idea that when we sow those kind of seeds, what kind of harvest they're going to bring. We just trust you with it that... 
as we offer ourselves to you and to others that it will indeed make a difference in people's lives around us and in our communities and churches and who knows, even statewide or, or nationally. May it be so, Lord, as we follow you. In Christ's name we pray.